today on the Almond Journey podcast. We're trying to get 15,000 cover crop acres planted this year, and uh, we, we think we're going to be able to do that. Getting that cover crop to help you keep that soil opened up to allow your stuff to get down, man, it's huge. We're talking cover crops in almonds with Rory Crowley and Kyle Nichols. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance the almond industry. We're going to start today's episode up north in Chico, California, with Rory Crowley of Project Apis M. Then later, we'll travel south on Highway 99 to meet up with Kyle Nichols, farm manager at Cinderland Farms in Winton, California, near Atwater. In today's episode, we'll discuss what growers are seeing in terms of benefits and trade-offs of planting cover crops, how they make the economics and agronomics of it all work, what this means for water requirements, and much more. Starting out in Chico here with Rory Crowley, who's an almond grower himself, and also the Habitat Program Director for Project Apis M, running the Seeds for Bees program. You may recall the Seeds for Bees episode we did back in episode 11 of this podcast, but if the concept is new for you, Seeds for Bees is a Project Apis M nonprofit program that encourages growers to support honeybee and soil health by planting cover crops in or near orchards that bloom prior to, during, and after almond bloom. Rory says he empathizes with what his fellow growers are going through right now, and in response, the Seeds for Bees program has made some changes this year. I'm a grower as well up here in Chico. I've been planting cover crop for a long time. And uh, the cultural costs have just gone through the roof. I mean, we diesel, fertilizer, you name it, it's hard. Everything on the market seems to be more and more difficult. So growers are having a really hard time. It's because of that that Seeds for Bees is pushing out more free seed allocations this year. So this year, we're upping both of those allocations for first and second year awardees by $500. So we're excited about that. We want to really help in a tough time. We do believe here at Seeds for Bees and Project APSM that cover crop is so important and even more so when we're having difficult times and especially difficult weather to plant in. That increase in allocation that he just referred to brings the amount that new participants can get to $2,500 and then $1,500 for second-time participants. Another change is the program opened enrollment 15 days earlier this year than they did last year to June 1st, which means, of course, it's open right now, and it will be open for a total of three months so they can get seed to everyone to plant in October. Rory says they're really looking forward to building on the momentum from last year's success. I think we funded somewhere around 250 applications last year. So we had a significant amount of almond growers, which we're very happy about. Obviously, almonds are the uh, the largest bee-pollinated crop in the world. They're also first to the scene here in North America in terms of getting pollinated uh, for those commercial beekeepers. And so there's somewhere around you know 7,200 acres of cover crops were planted in almonds last year, spanning somewhere around 16,000 acres of almonds overall, uh, affected acreage of almonds. And so... The almond industry really continues to lead, I think, in cover crop planting, especially in our program, and we're happy to see that. We know that more work has to be done, but you know, the Almond Board has been continuing to come through on funding our program, 
uh, on getting the word out to growers, particularly for cover crops, and honestly, just uh, better bee BMPs, honeybee BMPs. I mean, even this year, we're going to be sending out a number of the Almond Board's resources. The honeybee BMPs is something that we're going to send out hard copy with every bag of seed. We're also going to be sending out the cover crop BMPs hard copy with every bag of seed. So we're really excited about some of those resources going out, particularly to those almond growers. Those impressive numbers from last year included 143 new almond growers coming to seeds for bees, which was a 40% increase. And they're hoping for even more this year. And we'll come back to Rory for some additional information and resources at the end of today's episode. Bee habitat is one great reason to explore cover crops, but it's also not the only benefit. Now we'll turn our attention over to Merced County grower Kyle Nichols, who's using a combination of compost and cover crops to improve soil quality in his orchards. The wheel started turning for Kyle years ago when he was working with a dairy group who wanted to bring the Midwest practice of strip tilling into their row crops in California. Kyle said he was skeptical at first, but then he really saw the value of building soil biology and eventually saw the connection of how this could also help in tree crops. The strip tilling practices for the corn guys, for dairymen around here, has really taken off. There's a lot of dairymen that do it now, and I've kind of heard the same thing. It's like, man, it really works on helping just target those zones of building the organic matter going down. So, to go back to almonds, that's what I think we need to start doing in the almonds is taking that material, getting it to get back in the soil, because all of that helps. You know, when we harvest in an almond orchard, we're basically vacuuming, and it used to be a lot worse back in the day before the harvester technology got the way it did. But we pretty much used to suck everything off the floor. So on my family's ranch, we were very good friends with a huller up there, and he would bring out, he had no place for all the huller dirt. He used to get so much huller dirt, so many holes, everything. There was no use for the holes. There was no use for the shells, you know, in the 90s. And they hadn't really started using it as feed or anything yet. And so everything got brought out to my mom and dad's. And it got laid on all of this marginal rolling hills soil. It wasn't very good soil. So this is where it, it kind of really kind of sank home of we need to try to keep as much stuff in the orchard as we can. Because you go look at my mom and dad's place compared to both neighbors that have just rolling plains. You know, the grass grows for about three weeks and then it dies and then you turn the cows out on it. And then you drive my mom and dad's and it looks like a little oasis because the fact that it's had close to 30 years of huller dirt and almond holes and everything else dumped on that soil. And I think about it all the time going, holy cow, you know, my mom and my dad's place is probably some of the richest soil in the world because it's had all the richest soil in the world brought to it, <laughs> you know? And so you, you sit back and you think about it, it's like, whoa, this is how much we were losing and we were sending to the hullers and, and then the hullers had nothing to do with it. So they had to get rid of it. So then how does all this translate into real outcomes using cover crops? Kyle says it's going to look different depending on the orchard and the soil and a variety of factors. But he talks about a couple of examples of how he's seen this work in either very sandy or heavy clay soils. You, know, you think the almonds, right? I'm looking at an orchard right here that I'm parked next to. And we got grass down the centers. And this is one of the guys I, I work with a lot. So we got grass down the centers. You know, he's on micros so it, it, we can cover almost the entire floor with water. And he alternate mows. 
you know, and then we, we mow it and we get it cleaned up and, you know, trees look nice and healthy, you know, as irrigations are down, all that kind of stuff. And this is on sand. So it even helps too, especially in this area with so much sand on the ground. And that's like the biggest problem we come to harvest. Well, if we don't have anything binding the sand too, it makes harvest a nightmare. Sweepers are getting stuck. Harvesters are getting stuck. Runners are getting stuck. You know, you're pulling your hair out. You can't get nothing done. Stupid sand. But, you know, I mean, we're farming on the Sahara Desert is what it feels like. So that's another big one where the cover crops help bind that sand, give the equipment something to grip to, give it something to, to hold on to. That root system's still there. That's still holding on. It still gives us some traction so we're not just digging a hole. And guys up in my area, when I grew up in like Yuba City, I always wondered why they planted mustard in between all of the peaches and the prunes and everything else that they grew up there. And it made sense now getting older and understanding it is that they were utilizing it to keep that clay, that really heavy clay soil open. You know, mustard sends a hell of a taproot. Well, you can help keep that soil open and allow the drainage to happen, allow that water to get there and then leave. And that's what I've noticed, you know, as, as we implement cover crops, you know, even guys that maybe they don't want to do cover crops, but they have already a good, a good host of weeds that do the same job in their orchard already. We just leave it alone, you know, don't mess with it. And so what it does is it brings that water over there and it disperses that water all across the entire row. And I call it kind of making a, a water bank, right? It's going to hold all that water. And all those roots are going to hold that water between tree to tree. But of course, to grow these roots, to help hold that water, we need to have some water initially to get the cover crop established. Back in episode 11, you heard Samantha Lopes talk about using a water truck to get cover crop seed to germinate in some of their orchards. For Kyle, his approach is to get the cover crops planted as early as possible and hope Mother Nature cooperates. He's seen firsthand in a peach orchard what can happen if the seed gets planted too late. I tried some this year late, and by the time we got everything done on the two orchards I did it late on, it was already too late in the year for them to really germinate well. I had some germinate on areas that stayed wet, maybe some lower spots that the drip on these particular orchards where they had the drip, where it puddled and where we had some runoff and stuff, and that's the reason why we're putting the cover crop in. They germinated there, but 90% of the orchard, it was a bust. It was something that we tried late. We were late getting in there. You know, the reason why we did the cover crop in the one particular peach orchard that we have is the fact that the ground is extremely tight, extremely tight. So we've had to implement a lot of stuff on this orchard this year. So we've had to implement sulfuric acid because what was happening is we were getting a crust layer on the top of the soil. And that crust was because basically the water was too good. So when it finally hit the soil, it just bound up and we created a crust. So we had to start mixing some stuff with it to try to help it get it down. So we've done a lot of jip, we've done a lot of lime, they've done a bunch of stuff prior to me coming on. And so finally we decided to just go with sulfuric acid and let's try that. So far so good. We did take a Schmeiser ripper shank and run it right next to where our drip hoses run to help try to keep that area open and then we ran the rototiller in there too and incorporated all the grass and all the stuff that we had left 
in there from overwintering. We rototilled it, and then we thought, well, let's till it in, then let's plant a cover crop in there for what weeds and stuff we actually want. So then we came and we did that. And then, you know, we timed it perfect, too. We had those couple rainstorms, you know, March and April. And so we thought, well, if we do this right and we time this right, we'll get that rain on it. It should get everything started. We'll run the drip for a longer period of time to try to flood it over. Because what we had seen from last year, that thing was a lake half the time. And it made harvest a nightmare. And so that was our reasoning on it. Okay, cool. We'll do it. Well, with the sulfuric acid and then us running the ripper shank and the rototiller, it, it made such a soft soil that the water didn't ever get across. It just went down. It did they did what we were kind of looking for. And so what we wanted it to do. So it didn't really it didn't really get the, the cover crop germinated. But now that we got the floor where we want it, you know, at the end of harvest that, you know, peaches end. And so as soon as the peaches get done this year, we've already put it on our list that the tiller is going to run in there, take care of any ruts, any other imperfections and stuff like that. We're going to run the tiller. Then we'll pull the floats through. We'll get everything nice and flat. And then immediately as fast as we can get the cover crop planted so that we can take advantage of any rains that we might get in maybe end of October. Hopefully we get rain in November, things like that to help get that stuff started. And then it'll kind of help firm the ground back up a little bit, but we'll have that organic matter there to help prolong that. And as for the type of cover crops that you might want to select for your orchard to meet your goals, Seeds for Bees has some mixes available that Rory will talk about here in a few minutes. But Kyle so far has been putting together his own mixes to include some nitrogen fixers and other species that help address specific soil related issues he's trying to address in that orchard. Most cover crops you want to use, you know, you want to try to find some nitrogen fixing stuff that helps peas and things like that. You want to nitrogen fix. You want to find other stuff with mustards and radishes, things like that, that are going to help open the soil up, especially if you're in an area with some really tight soils, some really hard soils. You know, you think about you open that soil up, that's going to allow water to get down there easier. That's going to allow any nutrients that you do apply. If you apply gypsum, if you apply lime, whatever whatever soil amendments you're going to apply on that year, that's going to help get that into that soil better. When that plant is decaying after you've mowed it or it dies off or whatever, now you gave all the microbes something to eat on, you know, so now you're going to have those. The biggest thing I've noticed too with cover crops is worm activity. So between compost and the cover crops that we have, worm activity increases tenfold. And worms you know, not only can you take them and go fishing, but you can um, you can just watch them work, right? They're, they're opening all those channels up. They're keeping that ground open up too so that air and water and nutrients and everything else can flow down those tunnels. They're eating all that stuff up, decomposing it, you know, just working all of that stuff. So if you can get the whole ecosystem working under the ground too, you know, guys love to go trees to trees to trees. But if you go trees to trees to trees to trees to trees without taking care of the soil that they're growing on, you're going to watch that your, your, your inputs on fertilizer and everything else are going to have to do this steady increase in amounts where, you know, yeah, your trees are, oh, yeah, they look fine, da, 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 but all of a sudden that tree is 15 years old and we get one good windstorm and everything blows over. All oh, the root systems couldn't expand. The, the root system is unhealthy. 
And it all has to go back to the fact that the worms, the organic matter, everything that you're putting in the soil to try to help keep it loose, keep it from binding and allowing that root system to expand and grow so that you have a good, solid foundation of tree. You know, and, and it goes with any crop that you grow. If you don't have a solid foundation with that crop, you know, it's just it's not going to produce. It's not going to do nothing. And so you're going to fight that a lot. But that's the biggest thing is getting that cover crop to help you keep that soil opened up to allow your stuff to get down in there. Man, it's huge. And in addition to this improved water and nutrient holding capacity, Kyle's excited about what the biological activity can do to keep more orchard biomass in the orchard to continue to feed future crops. That's kind of one thing where the compost and the cover crop come back into play. You know, almond leaves aren't very big and they fall and they pretty much blow away and they get crushed up into nothingness. And then you come through and you run your wood chipper through there and you grind all your brush and it's back there on the floor, but there's nothing on the floor to break that down. So that eventually gets picked back up and sent to the hauler. And then it gets sent to places like my mom and dad's, or maybe there's some guys that, that do compost that buy the hauler dirt. It goes to that. So if you can have a crop on there, that's going to help break that material down and help get that material back in the soil. You know, that's all biomass that needs to be going back into our soil and so if we can replace it with the compost and replace it with the cover crop, trying to get those nutrients back, trying to get that stuff back into the soil in the orchard floor, that's going to be a big benefit in the long term of keeping the soil health. Because like I said earlier, you know, guys like to take the orchards out and if they don't come in and try to plant another crop, you know, and they want to just come back with the trees, that maybe that tree has drained that soil. There's nothing there. And so now you're back to constantly doing the fertility, constantly pushing fertilizers. So one of the other reasons why I, I think that the cover crops is good too is because now with the restrictions on burning, right, we're having to figure out what the heck we're going to do with all this waste, right? So most of the guys' answers is, all right, well, we're going to spread it back on the orchard. Okay, cool. That's a great idea. But, you know, if that soil health isn't that great and it doesn't have those microbes in there to break down all that wood matter, it's going to take a long time before that wood is broken down, eaten up, and dissolves. So one thing that I've seen a lot of guys around here doing because they have access to it, they're putting loads of manure out there on the wood chips and or a slurry on the wood chips to try to use the micros in the manure to try to break down the wood chips so they can incorporate it back into the soil, right? And so that's one thing too, with the cover crops, that's inviting all that, you know, ecosystem like we were talking about. It's getting that ecosystem going so that when it is time to take the orchard out, you know, lay down the wood chips on it and stuff like that. Well, we already have a really good microorganisms living in that soil, eating down, breaking all that stuff. Man, oh man it's just going to benefit you because you're not going to have to fight those wood chips when you're, you know, third or fourth year, when you start actually picking up a crop, wood chips are nothing. They're not there anymore. They're gone. And I've seen a few orchards that don't have a good microorganism system. They've reincorporated the wood chips in there. They didn't do the best job incorporating the wood chips in there. So guess what? When you go by their berms or when you walk out in their orchard and you see this just, huge amount of wood chips still on the floor 
that are just barely ground up from the few passes with the mower and the maybe a you know incorporator or something like that on, on for the floor man oh man you think about it, it's like god it's gonna take forever and then you go buy some orchards that i've seen that have a slurry or a large amount of compost and they are a large amount of manure or they had a good ecosystem in their floor in the dirt and those wood chips are gone in two seasons maybe three seasons they're disappeared and Kyle is definitely not alone in this cover crop journey. As you heard from Rory earlier, there are more and more growers getting started with cover crops and exchanging ideas. Because in many cases, it's not just about planning another crop. It represents a new way of thinking, a more systems-based approach to building higher quality soils. The guy that really got me hooked on the cover crops was a gentleman named Silas Rosso of California Ag Solutions. If I have a question that I can't answer myself, I could reach out to him. He's a great, great guy. So anyway, reaching out to him, he did a farm tour of a bunch of ranches that he implements cover crops and compost and some of their fertility programs, things like that. And I didn't realize this, but on most of your cover crops that you're planting, and most of your fertilizer companies all sell cover crops, he sells cover crops, you know, they all have their blend, their seeds, but they all pretty much sit about the same. But uh, the little microfibers and hairs on the roots of the radishes or the mustard or the other mix of grasses and, and stuff in there, they actually will grab onto water particles and actually hold onto them. And so they'll be there readily available. And so that's why... I say you really don't need to change your watering practices. You don't need to water more because that crop, yeah, it may be using part of that water that you're applying to the tree, but it's also helping store other water too. Like it's collecting it, it's holding on to it. The roots of the tree will eventually find it, you know, things like that. So you can pretty much stick to your normal watering practices. And with that tour, we met a farmer that started implementing cover crops and compost and things like that. And it was really interesting to listen to him because it was kind of the, it really made sense. And I think it makes sense to a lot of farmers. He said, when I discovered the cover crop stuff, it's what made me feel like I became a farmer again. And I started playing with the cover crops. I started using different seed blends in different blocks. He goes, I started being back out in the field and not just you know, well, I guess I'll go work on a shaker for today and get it ready for heart. Like he goes, I, I started wanting, getting that, that need, that drive to put my boots on every morning, and go out and, and walk my orchards and, and look at everything. And, and, and to hear this guy talk about it was really interesting because I always kind of felt like that with the trees too. And that, that's why I was always kind of a row crop PCA, row crop guy for a long time. It's because I just thought ah, it's a tree, like whatever, it's a tree. But then once I found cover crops, compost, and watching the benefits of both of those working together to help, I related to where that guy was coming from. So if you're listening to this and maybe you want to get started with cover crops or at least looking for a way to reduce some of the initial barriers to entry, Seeds for Bees is really a great place to start. Going back to Rory Crowley, he says they have a variety of mixes available to meet your needs. We technically have five seed mixes that we have deployed annually. And to make a long story short, two of those mixes are really what I would call our, our workhorse mixes. 
We have what we're calling the pollinator brassica mix, which is our old brassica mustard mix. It's the same mix. We're just calling it something different. And then we also have the other workhorse, what we used to call soil builder mix, which we are now calling BioBuild 3. Again, same mix, but just different names. We wanted to make sure that the names <laughs> encapsulate what they do. For example, our pollinator brassica mix. This mix is probably what I would be pushing growers onto this year. There's a number of reasons for that. Number one, it's at a great price point. Because cultural costs and all sorts of other costs are through the roof, this is one of our mixes that's one of our cheapest mixes, but still has that really high quality that both gives soil health and pollinator health and productivity. Secondly, because we're in the drought cycle, these brassicas just do a phenomenal job with very little water. We saw just this last year, some places down in the South Valley, they only got three inches of rain and they still took off up to three to four to five feet. I mean, it was incredible. So in many ways, the price point, the drought cycle, the limited water that's needed to grow this, our pollinator brassica is really the mix to go with. The bio build, unfortunately, this is a difficult year for seed. The war in Ukraine has kind of sent seed markets, uh, all sorts of seed markets in awry. And, you know, we also have the ongoing drought in the West, up in Canada, the Pacific Northwest, which is also putting pressure on the seed market. All that to say, our BioBuild mix, the bell beans and the peas, we've got to be honest, that has really put the cost up on that. Still available, there is limited availability, but it is a more costly mix and therefore you won't get as much scale. So what I'm doing this year, because there's a drought, because we're still in that drought cycle and because growers are really being pinched in their wallet, what I would say is let's push the brassica. We know that that grows on a, on a limited amount of water precipitation. We also know that it's our cheapest mix. We can get more seed in the ground. I'm pushing our pollinator brassica mix. But again, every mix is available. Our annual clover is available as well as our grain, vetch, and our wildflower. Each one has different price points. Each one has different seeding rates. But we get into that um, after you take the application and we get into all those. So yeah, go to our website. Our website has all the mixes on there. And uh, yeah, we're just, we're excited. In addition to offering these seed mixes and the Seeds for Bees program to award funds to get started, Project APSM offers a variety of resources for any cover crop related question you may have. That includes a quick guide that covers best practices on everything from planting cover crops to managing them to communicating with your beekeeper. All of that, as well as the Seeds for Bees application, can be found on their website. Go to our website, projectapsm.org, and then click on the Seeds for Bees link up at the top. You'll see a big link that says apply now. You could go there. There's also plenty of links out there, I think probably uh, on the Almond Board of California's page. We have tried to have a really strong communications plan with a number of our media outlets this year, but ultimately come to our website, projectapsm.org, click on the Seeds for Bees link, and uh, it'll take you right into the application. The application, I also just wanna say real quick, we're streamlining the application as well. We want to make it easy, accessible, and user-friendly. It's a simple form that you just go in there, you fill out, and it's done in probably less than 20 minutes. And then we come back on the back end, we evaluate, you have to go through an application 
interview, a short one, where we kind of check and balance some of that data and make sure that uh, you meet the requirements, but also that we know how much seed you need, when you're going to plant, how you're going to plant. Um, it's a little bit of technical assistance, but this application process is probably one of the easiest you will find in the industry for getting free stuff. So come to the website, check it out, go to Seeds for Bees, click on that application, fill it out, and then we'll have a chat, and then we'll get you seed at the door before October 1st. That's our goal. All right, so there you have it. Probably in less time than it took you to listen to this podcast, you could have already applied at projectapism.org. That link will also be in the show notes to the episode as well. Thanks so much to Rory Crowley and, of course, to Kyle Nichols for sharing their almond journeys with us today on the show. We believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Kyle Nichols and Rory Crowley may have sparked a connection or an idea you can use in your own journey. That's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to this show on your podcast platform of choice. And please, if you would, pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together.